This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Thank you for joining us in our Out of the Blue podcast. Today we're going to discuss an article by Dr. Haley Gershengorn and colleagues entitled Association of Premorbid Blood Pressure with Vasopressor Infusion Duration in Patients with Shock. I'm joined today by lead author Dr. Haley Gershengorn, who's Associate Professor and Interim Vice Chief of the Division of Pulmonary Critical Care Medicine and Sleep Medicine at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. Uh, Welcome, Haley, and thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for the invitation, Mike. Well, thank you for coming on. Now, your study looked at the association between blood pressure and vasopressor duration, but before we go into that study, I wanted to point out that we're coming up on 20 years now of advocating for 65 millimeters of mercury mean arterial pressures for all patients with sepsis. And this generic protocol has had a huge benefit on survival over those past two decades. So why do we need a personalized target for our patients? I think it's a, a great context, Mike, for you to put this conversation in. And I think since you and I know each other a little bit, you would agree that I tend to be a big proponent of protocolized uh, care, especially when it starts to lead us in the right direction. So I agree with the, with the understanding that this is kind of a bit of a complex issue. And I would argue that I think protocols are a wonderful place to start. Um, we've seen that through many parts of critical care. Um, I think a prime example might be early goal-directed therapy and septic shock, right? Where we saw potentially the initiation of a protocol early on really helping all of us direct general care in a similar way. But then sort of a relaxation of that strict protocol being allowed for, or potentially even better for patients once we all have sort of come to the same sort of level playing field, I guess. And and so for me, I think it's been a wonderful advance that we've said, all right, this is where we should all start. And now that we've sort of accepted that, I think there's good room for us to investigate whether or not personalization in one manner or another might be beneficial. And I think we have some uh, preliminary evidence that that may be the case. And I think the most notable example is um, Dr. Osvar's study um, where they randomized uh, patients to either a 65 or a higher 80 target of MAP. Um, And although they didn't find mortality difference, right, they did start to see that in patients who were hypertensive at baseline, there might be a difference in the need for renal replacement therapy. And I think that that starts to tell us that maybe starting to veer away from this protocol for everyone might be the way to go. Yeah, I think that tailoring the patient's therapy to their particular physiology is a very appealing concept right now. For example, if someone had chronic hypertension, they might need a higher blood pressure to maintain perfusion. And so with your study, how did your group actually determine what the patient's baseline or pre-morbid blood pressure was? That was the toughest part, I think, and actually what delayed this study getting done for quite some time. Um, Ideally, what we would have loved to do was have access to many ICU patients' blood pressures when they are fully well right? Either in the home setting or second best in their physician offices when they're going in for regular checkups. Um, Unfortunately, we were unable to find a data source that would allow us enough patients that had that kind of linked data between well blood pressures and uh, blood pressures or, or information during their ICU stay. And so what we did instead was look back over the three years before an ICU stay to try to figure out what blood pressures people had had when they were getting toward better. And so we used either hospitalized blood pressures and that did make up the bulk of our pre-morbid blood pressure information or outpatient blood pressures when those were available 
but we tried to take the most recent uh, group of those with the hope that in a hospitalization, those would be as someone was starting to get better and back toward their baseline. Yeah, I noticed that about 60% of the patients who were admitted to the study ICUs didn't have a premorbid blood pressure, and a lot of the patients in the studies had a relatively recent inpatient blood pressure, suggesting that this study may have favored patients who had been more frequently admitted to a hospital. Do you think that this uh, may have had an effect of excluding some patients who might have been healthier at baseline? I mean, I think it certainly biases our study um, to be more applicable to patients who are less healthy. Um, I don't disagree with that at all. I'm not sure what that means uh, in terms of the fact that I'm not sure that there's clear uh, trends in patients who are not picked up, patients who are healthier, as to whether they would have lower or normal or higher pre-more blood, blood pressures. I think we all know that there are plenty of folks walking around with undiagnosed hypertension, for instance, um, and there are also probably many healthy folks who at baseline have lower blood pressures. And so. I, I agree it's a real limitation of our study, and I'm just not sure how it biases the results, although I'm sure it does. Well, let's move on to outcome. Your study's primary outcome was the duration of vasopressor use. How did you actually determine the duration? For example, if a patient was weaned off vasopressors for 24 hours and then restarted, how were they assigned? Yeah, so that was, I think, one of the real points of contention, both within our authorship group and then also in conversation, you know, written conversations with the reviewers, was whether or not the choice that we made, which we made a priori, was a good one. And so what we decided um, was that we would look for the first vasopressor use experience that each patient had in each ICU stay um, with an understanding that what was allowing them to be tapered off was what their, in most instances, most likely what their blood pressure was. And so if we could figure out what the first duration was, that would give us a sense of how blood pressure impacted vasopressor use in the same way that if we looked at the overall duration, it might. And what we chose to use was that if patients were off of vasopressors for 12 hours or more before they were restarted, that was considered the end of their first vasopressor use uh, exposure. That 12 hours was fairly arbitrary. Um, We discussed six, we discussed 24. I think we knew we wanted it to be more than one or two hours. Um, But I think that the decision for 12 um, is certainly something that people can question. Yeah, I think 12 hours seems to have pretty good face validity. That was our feeling. Now, you used a multivariable regression model to evaluate for the association between premorbid blood pressure and the vasopressor duration. What other covariates did you adjust for in your model? So I think in in typical uh, retrospective critical care studies, we combined things we thought were important with things we actually had access to, right? And so we used demographics. um, And so in this data set that included age and gender, we had information about comorbidities, which we quantified as Ellix-Hauser count um, for the number of comorbidities that patients had um, as denoted in their medical record by billing codes. Um, we had access to Apache, Apache 2 score on ICU admissions, so within the first 24 hours as a marker of severity of acute illness. Um, and then we used mechanical ventilation at any point during their ICU stay as a marker also of severity of acute illness, recognizing that there's some challenge in that if the ICU stay is long and mechanical ventilation happens later in the stay, this may be a result um, of what has happened in the ICU stay rather than a result of initial illness. Right, right. And, and, and how did you handle patients who died while still on vasopressors? So I, I think 
in this case, we, we handled that reasonably well, although there was some discussion about whether or not we should look at it in other ways as well. Um, we use what are called competing risks regression models. And so this allowed us specifically for our primary outcome of vasopressor duration, but also for a couple of our secondary outcomes, ICU and hospital length of stay, to include all of the multivariable uh, covariates that you just asked about, but then also censor each of our patients at the time of ICU death or at the time of death such that if somebody was on vasopressors until the time they die, they weren't counted fully as having completed a course, but instead censored out of the model at that time. Okay, and then you also tested for other secondary outcomes as well, correct? That's right. So initially our plan had been uh, to look at ICU and hospital length of stay, as I had mentioned, as well as ICU and hospital mortality. Um, some of the questions the reviewers raised, which we thought were very interesting, related to the effect on organ dysfunction. Unfortunately, we didn't have perfect data to allow us to assess organ dysfunction, but we did uh, do some basic analyses on the daily SOFA score and use of continuous renal replacement therapy. Those seem to me to be fairly reasonable surrogates for organ dysfunction. But let's move on to your results here. Now, how many patients in your study had premorbid low blood pressure and how many had high? So by our criteria, um, and again, to just to explain the low blood pressure criteria we used were systolic blood pressure less than 100 um, with any diastolic blood pressure, 5% of our sample of 3,500 plus patients had low baseline blood pressure and 13.5% had high baseline blood pressure, which we had defined as a systolic greater than or equal to 140 and or a diastolic greater than or equal to 90. And what sort of patients were likely to have low blood pressure or high blood pressure? Were the low blood pressure patients healthier or were they sicker? Um, in general, actually looking at their severity, acute severity of illness, they weren't particularly different. Um, they were the, the ones with lower premorbid blood pressure tended to be younger. They tended to have fewer overall comorbidities. The ones with higher premorbid blood pressure compared to normals tended to be older and tended to have more baseline comorbidities. But then the specific comorbidities, I think, as one might expect, were slightly different. And so for, for folks who had lower premorbid blood pressures at baseline, they tended to have more renal disease, more cardiac disease, and more baseline chronic liver disease. Whereas those who had baseline uh, high premorbid blood pressures, they tended to have more diabetes and more diagnoses of hypertension, which isn't terribly surprising. Right, right. I think that association is what a lot of people would expect to find. Now, can you walk us through the associations that you found in your regression models? What exactly did you find? Sure, sure. So for our primary outcome, we found that the duration of vasopressor use was higher or longer in patients with low premorbid blood pressure than it was in normal premorbid uh, blood pressure patients. So particularly the average or the median, I'm sorry, number of days until patients were off of vasopressors in the low group was 1.35, and the normal premorbid blood pressure group, it was 1.04. And similarly, in the group that had high premorbid blood pressures, they had even shorter duration of vasopressor use, or 0.84 days. So sort of a dose-response relationship. We did not see uh, any difference um, in uh, the use of the sort of other organ failure uh, markers, the SOFA and CRT or uh, continuous renal replacement therapy. Although we did see with low uh, premorbid blood pressure, longer ICU and hospital length of stay. And I think surprising to us, um, higher ICU and hospital mortality. Right. And you also uh, looked at alternate definitions of premorbid blood pressure and found the results were pretty similar across the board? Correct. 
to correct. So we sort of, we had made that decision up front to group patients by the low, medium, and high uh, baseline or premorbid blood pressures, but we figured that that was somewhat arbitrary. So we looked at it as continuous variables. And then we also figured that there were some folks who were now being counted as normal or maybe even low premorbid blood pressure, but who had actually been hypertensive and were given medications or things like that to bring their blood pressure down. And so we, in one of our sensitivity analysis, actually considered a diagnosis of chronic hypertension in conjunction with these groups. And as you say, the results were fairly robust across all of those definitions. That does make for a compelling case. One aspect of your study that I found very interesting was that you noted patients with low blood pressures were more likely to die. Why do you speculate this might be? Well, I will say that we were surprised, or at least my hypothesis going in was that we would see more resource use, excuse me, more uh, longer durations of blood pressure supporting medication use with low premorbid patients, but not differences in mortality. Um, So I think certainly with that lens, um, one of the biggest possibilities, which we comment upon in the discussion certainly, is that presence of residual confounding, right? As we talked about, there are some uh, confounders that we were able to adjust for potential confounders, but there are probably several things that are different about these patients that we just don't have the data to adjust away. So I I think that's one real possibility. Um, But the other possibilities might be that there's something intrinsic to having, um, to requiring or needing longer blood pressure support, right? There's something potentially negative about the use of vasopressors, either uh, complications directly from the vasopressor use, for instance, arrhythmias that we, we know have been seen with certain vasopressors and the potential association those arrhythmias have with worse outcomes or mortality. Um, there's also the possibility of downstream effects from what happens from having to be on vasopressors in a lot of centers, certainly in the one in which I work. Vasopressors are delivered nearly exclusively through central venous access, and so the need to have central venous catheters for longer may have its own downstream negative effects on patients. Um, and then there's the possibility, right, that this group of patients um, is being kept at a blood pressure that is sometimes actually above their baseline blood pressure. Um, And that may have some negative impact for them as well. Yeah, I think those are all great possibilities. One thought that I uh, had was that perhaps the physicians who were managing these patients might be already trying to personalize blood pressure goals. And so I was wondering, during the time the patients were on vasopressors, is there any indication that the physicians at these study hospitals were doing any sort of tailoring of blood pressure goals? Or was it more of a one-size-fits-all protocol? So, So I'll confess to the fact that I haven't looked specifically at individual patients to see if there are clear outliers to the trend of trying to target a map of about 65. Overall, um, the patients in all groups did hover around 65. The ones in the low premorbid group a little bit lower on the order of three to four millimeters of mercury lower than the others, but very close to 65. And two of our colleagues um, for this, uh, to the to the co-authors for this study are actually Canadian um, intensivists who practice in Calgary. And their anecdotal experience is that in general, it really is a sort of standard protocolized approach and rather than a targeting, although as you say, that's certainly possible. Did you notice any different associations with different types of shocks? Like for example, cardiogenic versus septic shock? Yeah, I think that's a really key question. And and unfortunately we didn't have as much granular data as we would have liked to try to ask that question. I think the easiest dichotomy was patients who were septic versus not for a variety of reasons. First, I think they tend to make up the largest cohort of shock patients. 
And then similarly, because of that, I think there were indicators in our data set that patients were septic um, as one of the flags that they, that they were checked off as having. And so we were able to separate the groups between sepsis and not. Um, and in that setting, um, we saw that for both septic and non-septic patients, although to differing degrees, there was an increase in the duration of vasopressor use associated with having a lower versus a normal pre-morbid blood pressure. The part where it differs a little bit is looking at the normal versus high. And in that case, we didn't see the same result. Uh, instead, the septic patients really didn't show much difference in the duration of vasopressors between normal versus high, but those who were not septic shock, other forms of shock, uh, had lower or shorter durations of vasopressors if they had high baseline blood pressures compared to normal. We would have been really interested in looking particularly at hemorrhagic or hypovolemic shock. It was just a lot harder to identify those patients. Um, and particularly, there are not great validated systems specifically using billing codes to find them. And so we just felt that it was not a particularly robust analysis. Right. I think some people will read your study and think, this confirms what I already know, and some people need to have higher blood pressures, some people need to have lower blood pressures. But one thing that you brought up earlier was that the 2014 New England Journal study by ASFAR about the high versus low blood pressure, the sepsis spam study, demonstrated targeting higher MAPs didn't reduce mortality. And so how should I interpret your study in relationship to that? So I think a couple things. I think the first thing is that at least for me, when I, when I first thought about this question, what prompted it for me was really those folks that were low, um, low baseline or low premorbid blood pressure. And I felt like they were just dragging on on vasopressors seemingly pointlessly. Um, and so I wonder, um, you know, as for our study really looked at what we consider the standard versus targeting something even higher, right? And I do wonder, although I don't know this, whether or not you know, what we really are asking about is not nor what we're targeting versus higher, but actually what we're targeting versus lower. And maybe we might not see the same kind of results if we looked at 65 versus 55 or 50 or something like this in the right cohort of patients, whoever that might be. So I think that's one thing. Um, I also, you know, I'm not, as we talked about, not entirely sure what to make of this mortality signal. Um, and I, I do worry a lot of it may be residual confounding, although that may be just an easy answer. And again, what really prompted our interest in this was resource use. And as you know, that's one of my sort of general interests uh, in, in critical care study at, at large, which is, are we doing things to patients that may have harms, but that are unnecessary and are using up resources that some other patient may need? And I, we really were, at least I was really surprised by the mortality uh, signal. And so I wonder if the fact that we're looking at sort of two different things, right, his primary uh, question, I think appropriately, was patient survival. And I think that we might be just asking a different question. That's an excellent point. You know, you raised the question of whether targeting a lower blood pressure might be tolerable for people who have lower baseline blood pressure, which I think is extremely relevant in septic shock where lower systemic vascular resistance occurs. And that would suggest that perfusion pressure, in theory, should drop. Uh, I find this study fascinating in that it suggests that we should consider personalizing blood pressure targets for the patients. But one question I wonder about is if blood pressure is the right target at all, especially since perfusion pressure can change with systemic vascular resistance. Uh, we, we talk about perfusion, cardiac output, tissue extraction, or other assessments of physiologic needs for vasopressor supports. What do you think the right target is? 
Um, so I think I have this easy out, which is to say that I'm not really a physiologist. I'm not sure I'm the best person to answer it, but I, I think you, at least for me, have hit upon the key of it, which is blood pressure is easy, right? And, and I don't think it's right. Um, and I think it's certainly not complete, but I worry that a lot of the other potentially more accurate um, markers of organ perfusion are just going to be very hard to implement on all patients at all times. And I think that blood pressure, maybe plus minus some sort of gross assessments of organ function, as simple as is the patient awake and talking to me as an assessment of neurologic function, is probably more practical and, and probably sufficient for the majority of people, right? It probably isn't perfect, but I think it's probably sufficient. I do think they're gonna be those people on the margins, right? Whether they're defined by their baseline or pre-morbid blood pressure or by something entirely different, where we're gonna to have to do something smarter. Um, but I do worry that if we try to implement something smarter that's more complex in everybody, it's just gonna be infeasible. Perfect is the enemy of good. You know, despite my enthusiasm for some of these physiologic markers, I'll be the first to admit that many of them are not feasible to obtain in all patients. So when I interpret this study, I think, man, I would love to have an individualized target for my patient. But it seems so challenging to do this in a replicable way or to try to study this prospectively using a trial. If you could, how might you design a future trial to test a tailored approach for vasopressors? So again, I have the easy out of saying I'm not a trialist as well as being not a physiologist, but I thought a bit about this. And I, I think with the context of what I said before in response to your prior questions, I think it's still at least as a first pass needs to look at blood pressure. And I, I don't mean alone, um, but as the first thing. And so I wonder if the right approach or an approach might be to target something standard, 65 per, perhaps, but maybe not, for the first 24 or 48 hours, whatever it might be, especially in the situation where we might have a harder time assessing true impact on organ function particularly in regards to neurologic function because our patients may be sedated in regards to kidney function because we may have wild swings in volume status and acute uh, other acute insults to the kidney that would make it harder to, to sort of disentangle the blood pressure impact. Um, and I wonder if we could use that time to that first 24 or 48 hours to try to ascertain information about a patient's baseline blood pressure. Um, and then maybe the randomization is at hour 24 or 48 to randomize them to different targets based on their baseline. And I guess the sort of numbers person in me likes the idea of saying something to the effect of the randomization is to 100% of your baseline to 70% of your baseline, which kind of is what 60 map of 65 is for a person whose blood pressure is 120 over 80 to something else. Um, and I don't know if physiologically you know, I don't, I don't know if it's the same to say that 70% of a map for somebody who runs a map at 93 is the same as 70% of a map for somebody who runs a map at 50 at baseline. But I, I feel like that might be a way um, to use the baseline information to allow us to sort of tailor therapy. It's not saying that everybody's really different. It's just saying instead of taking an absolute number, let's take an absolute percent of your number. You know, I think that's a fascinating point that you bring up about looking at sepsis resuscitation 24 hours in. I think so much of our research has been focused on the first six hours of management 
part of that due to early goal-directed therapy and its legacy, and part of it due to the logistical constraints of trying to conduct research in critically ill patients. But so much of our management is well past the first six hours and goes on 24, 48 hours or longer. So I really like this idea about looking at sepsis resuscitation goals well into the resuscitation efforts rather than only focusing our research on the first six hours. And I think, you know, thank you. <laughs> I think in the way that, that our studies, you know, suggest if it's hypothesis generating for this, it's that the duration is what we're seeing is different. And I'm not sure we're going to take away the first 24 or 40 hours for somebody who's planning to be on vasopressors for a long period of time, um, nor are we going to change drastically the duration for somebody who's going to be on it for 12 hours of time. Um, but I think that, that that first 24 to 40 hours giving us a chance to sort of think through how we should do it better going forward may really help those longer use patients. Well said. I think we do need more research in that area of subacute to long-term resuscitation. Well, this concludes our Out of the Blue podcast. I hope listeners reconsider the goal of universal blood pressure targets and think about individualized targets based on physiologic needs, and I hope we see more investigation into this area. I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Gershengorn. This has been a great discussion on one of my favorite topics with one of my favorite intensivists. Uh, Thank you so much, Haley. Very welcome. Thank you again for the invitation, Mike. It's been fun. This is Michael Lansma for the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine.